The views, comments, stories, and opinions within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. Squawk Ident is an entertainment podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode three of Squawk Ident, recorded on October 12, 2019, from the Aviator Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, we'll be talking about From the Flight Line. I actually had a few days off to myself since our last podcast, and one of the most misunderstood and most questioned aspects of the job among my friends and family is the typical airline schedule. And really, there's no such thing. There are so many factors involved here. We're talking about reserve versus line holder. And we're going to dive into a little bit of that later on in the show. We're also going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of commuting and crash pads. I have had quite a bit of experience, as you can imagine, over the past decade or so. And from beyond the flight deck door, we're going to talk about the uniform, the hat, and the ironing board. In the news, a heartfelt story about a retiring American Airlines captain. When I saw this story floating around on social media, I thought, wow, now that is a class act. From there we were, laser strikes. How many of you aviators have been struck by lasers? And from inside the kit bag, flashlights. Do we go for the $200 Surefire or the El Cheapo Deluxo? I'll give you my two cents on that one. From the Struggle is Real segment, we're going to talk about how a career in aviation affects families, relationships, and marriages alike. All that and more coming up on this episode of Squawk Ident. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Squawk Ident. It's been about a week since my last episode aired, and... I have had the great opportunity to just stay home. So why do I have all this time at home? Uh, My flight schedule is probably one of the most misunderstood uh, aspects of the airline job. Most of my friends and family will ask me, what's your schedule like? Or what route do you fly? And the truth is, there is no set schedule or typical thing. So at an airline, whether you're at a regional or at a mainline, it's about the same. So when you start out, you are very, very low in seniority. And in this career, it's all about the seniority. So when you are new, you're going to end up being on what they call reserve. So what is reserve? Reserve is on call. Now, Different airlines have different methods of reserve. Some of them have what they call airport ready, where you're physically at the airport, usually on a six or eight or even nine hour shift, and you're paid to sit there 
usually in a crew rest facility, where if they need you, they'll call you, and you have usually a reasonable amount of time, is uh, most of the time the language in the contract, to get to the gate ready to go. Uh, on airport property is usually in the language as well of the contract. So, so there's airport ready. Then, of course, there's on call, whether that's uh, something commonly referred to as short call or long call. It's just dependent upon your particular airline. So let's say you're a pilot that is on short call. Now, most of the time, when you're on short call, when you get called from crew scheduling, you have somewhere between two, three, even four hours uh, or more to physically get to the airport. Um, some airlines just say, hey, as long as you get there within a reasonable amount of time, and what is that reasonable amount of time? That's really dependent on uh, the past uh, trend that's been going on, uh, depending on what base you're at as well has something to do with it. Uh, when I was flying for a regional, I remember being on short call uh, that if you were in certain bases, it was a two-hour call out. In other bases, it was a three-hour call out simply because there's more traffic and they're anticipating it's going to take you a little longer to get to the airport. So uh, normally a reserve block is between four and five days in a row and you're just on call. Now, with technology being what it is, you could easily be on short call on an app or on your computer or on your phone, and you can kind of see what the schedules are like. And from there, you can anticipate being called out. And at other airlines, uh, there is no... Uh, way to check to see what the schedules or available flights are. So uh, for those particular aviators, they're kind of at the mercy of their uh, crew scheduling. So it's definitely a relatively stressful time in an aviator's career when you're kind of junior and you're on reserve. So the best thing to do is just go with it and do your best. If you live in base, meaning you live in the same city for which uh, you're based out of, uh, that is absolutely the best scenario when you're on reserve. Uh, and sometimes people can uh, work the system a little bit. Those that want to fly, you know, can bid for flying or proffer for flying. Uh, and those that don't want to, just if they're senior enough that they know they won't get called, They'll just go with it and, you know, hopefully not get called. And they could usually spend most of their reserve time at home uh, sitting, you know, with a phone in their pocket just in case they get called and usually a bag already packed. So that's one less thing to do. So then there's also something called long call. Now, not all airlines have long call. Main lines do. Most main lines do. So a long call is usually a 24-hour call out. Of course, with 24 hours before you would need to show to uh, work, then you could usually commute. So if you have a 24-hour call out, you can sit at home, and then when they call you and say, hey, uh, we have a trip for you, uh, first officer, uh, so-and-so, uh, we need you to be at the airport 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, uh, yeah, no problem. So you have all day plus 
most of the morning of the next day in order to commute into your prospective bays. So that's the bare bones basic explanation of what it's like to be junior at both a regional and mainline carrier. Uh, once you start building seniority, now this, it could happen within months of being hired and going through training and IOE and all that, or it could take years in order to obtain enough seniority uh, behind you so that you can move into what they would call a line holder. Now, a line holder as an airline pilot is when you have enough seniority that you can physically get a schedule where you know what you're flying every day of the month uh, for the next month. And the great thing about that is obviously you can completely work around your schedule. You don't have to worry about uh, being on call or how am I going to commute or um, any of those things. You can actually kind of plan a life. So your quality of life definitely going to improve. Now, you have line holders that commute and you have line holders that live in base. Obviously, anytime you live in base, there's a great benefit to quality of life. If you have to commute, it just depends on where you're commuting from. If you're commuting from a relatively large city that has an international airport with hundreds of flights every day, uh, odds are your commute's not going to be that bad. But if you're doing a, a long commute or a two or three leg commute, regardless if you're a line holder or on reserve, commuting is just something that is going to be a thorn in your side for your career. And of course, commutes don't usually last very long because what happens when you gain seniority? You can then bid to a base that's either closer or your home base. So even as a line holder, or even as you gain seniority, your quality of life can improve at your carrier if you live in an area where you can eventually commute, uh, of a much easier commute, I should say. So just for a frame of reference, uh, I have enough seniority now at my carrier at Legacy Airlines that I can hold not only a line, but I can also hold a relatively good line with good destinations, good overnights, good layovers, uh, with start and finish times that are decent. And it doesn't hurt at all that I happen to live in base. And that's both a little bit by choice and by happenstance. So I was very fortunate to work for a Legacy Airlines. And when I was hired, the base that I currently uh, have as domicile is and was the most junior base. So I was able to hold that base, hold the aircraft I, I desired. And being that I live within an hour or two of the airport, it's not a big deal uh, if I have to go early or if I have to go late because I don't have to deal with the commuting. Now, that wasn't always the case. For more than 13 years, I was an off-again, on-again commuter. Uh, across the country as well, from LA to New York, from Seattle to Chicago, LA to Chicago, I commuted. So I went through all the struggles that all the commuters go through. There are good days when you're a commuter and there are bad days. And we'll kind of tackle a little bit of that a little later in the show. So a lot of people have asked, you know, what's your month like? 
So every month is a little different. So what we do as aviators uh, for regional and for mainline is we bid for our schedule, meaning uh, first or second week of the month, we are able to go online and actually bid or request some flying, a particular flying for the following month. And that process could be done a lot through software, which is uh, commonly referred to as what they call PBS, the preferential bidding system. So if you're going through PBS, you are going in and putting in a, a whole slew of information on what your preferences are. So you would obviously bid for a particular airplane and base, whatever you um, have been assigned. And you go in and you say, okay, do I want to start my trips after 8 a.m. or before 8 a.m.? Do I prefer to work the weekends? Do I prefer to be off before 5 p.m. so I can commute home? So there's all kinds of parameters in there. There's just hundreds of parameters. Other airlines have what they call hardline bidding, where they have uh, basically a spreadsheet of the whole month. And say there's uh, 200 lines. So, and maybe 350 pilots. So obviously not all the pilots will have a line. So the top 200, theoretically, will get a line. So what they do is the most senior pilot will say, hey, this is what my preferences are. Theoretically, the most senior pilot for that base only needs to bid one line because they're the most senior pilot. They're going to get their first choice. As you work down in seniority, and the 150th pilot needs to at least bid 150 lines, and so on and so forth. So based upon your seniority, you will hold what your seniority will allow. Now, there are a lot of debate uh, out there in reference to what's better, PBS or hardline bidding. And really, you know, they both have their pros and their cons. I've done both, and I can tell you that hardline bidding is a little bit nicer if you are in the mid-range in seniority, because you're probably, you know, after bidding for a few months in a row, you know what you're going to get. So you can kind of bid around that um, statistical average. If you're in PBS, statistically, if you are very senior or very junior, you kind of know what you're going to get. But if you're in the middle, you're, it depends on how good you are at putting in your parameters and your preferences. And if you're pretty good at it, you're going to be doing okay. But if your parameters have conflicts, then PBS will just kick that stuff out and you'll end up getting a less desirable trip or line. So what's the verdict? The verdict is both PBS and hardline bidding have its pros and their cons. And as an aviator, what's your route? Well, you know, how long do you have for me to explain how this works? I'm just barely scratching the surface here. And we've been talking for about 10 minutes on this. It, it, it really is something that is difficult, convoluted, and real technical. And even pilots that have been flying and bidding 
for months and even sometimes years, just kind of say, hey, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I just I kind of put my numbers in there, hope for the best, and it, and this is what I normally get, so I'm okay with that. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in the cockpit. Another pilot telling me, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I just... I kind of put in for this. I haven't changed and updated my PBS preferences in two years, and this is what I get. I get what I get. And others sit there, and they can just pick apart every little minute detail of their preferences, and they kind of know what they're going to get because they know how to tweak the system. So it just depends on who you talk to. But that's something that we can sit here and talk about for hours, and we're not going to do that. So no, I did not take any vacation this week. My line for the month of October at Legacy Airlines started out with some carryover from the previous month, meaning the line that I was awarded last month had a few days that carried over into this month. And then the line that I was awarded this month started a couple days after that. So I worked the first half of the week, the first week, a couple days off. Then I did my trip last week. That's the one where I was running in Kauai. And that trip finished on a Monday morning. And I had Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday off. Whereas Sunday, tomorrow, I'm going to start another trip. That trip's going to go on for four days and a couple days off, then another three-day trip and a couple days off, and so on and so forth. So you can see my month is filled sporadically with trips that are here and there. Now, I have in my preferential bidding uh, preferences the weekends off, uh, late starts, and early finishes with uh, maximum days off in between. In other words, strings of days off clumped together so that I can have these little uh, three, four, five day stints of off time. So I can get projects done around the house and you know, write stories for the podcast and whatnot. And it seems to be working out pretty good. And these kind of schedules allow me to really have some family time where a lot of pilots, they have kind of a a hard time, especially at the beginning of their careers on reserve because they feel like they're always gone. They're always at a crash pad or whatnot and waiting to be called. And what is a crash pad? We're going to get into that as well. What you should know is this. Whenever you start a new carrier and you're at the bottom of the seniority list, you can expect that there's going to be a lot of sitting. There's going to be a lot of on-call and on-demand schedules. You will have to spend a lot of time in the city of your base, wherever that may be. If you live there, great. If you don't, you'll need a place to sleep. Hotels get very expensive, and you can't sit there and buy a hotel every night. Thus, you should have shared living accommodations. And a lot of pilots get together, and they'll go in and pick up an apartment somewhere. They'll furnish it with some some beds, or bunk beds, or what have you. And, you know, the minimum uh, furniture and things that you might need. And then they'll split the rent. And sometimes you can find a place or one bedroom apartment with two or three guys or gals. Um, other times you'll have a two bedroom apartment with 10 or 15 people 
there. Now, they're not there all at the same time, but, but that opportunity does exist. So all this talk about commuting and crash pads just brings up all these memories I've had over the years of having to commute. As I mentioned earlier, 13 years of commuting back and forth to Chicago. I've had some pretty positive experiences and I've also had some absolute nightmares. And one particular story comes to mind that I'm going to share with you now. So there I was at the time living in Seattle, commuting to Chicago every week for my trip. And I was a line holder, uh, not super senior, but senior enough that I can hold commutable lines, meaning they started late enough in the afternoon that I could commute in the day of and not have to deal with crash pads and hotels and whatnot. So I bid for the following month, which was... I believe it was in either December or January. And I accidentally put in a bid for a line that started a little earlier than I would have liked. And wouldn't you know it, that's the line I got. So that meant I only had two opportunities to get to work, the bare bones minimum. Two flights that I could take each week that could get me into Chicago on time to make my sign-in and start my trip on time. And the first week went off okay. Uh, I noticed that there were quite a few commuters on that particular day at that particular time. So I ended up getting the second jump seat in an airplane that had two jump seats. I believe it was on United, an Airbus 321. And I thought, man, I really made it by the skin of my teeth. If I wouldn't have made this flight, the odds are I probably wouldn't have made the next one because that one was an Alaska flight, and it only had one jump seat. So I kind of went with it for that week, but the following week, I went even earlier to the earliest flight I could possibly take. And I got bumped off that flight. And the reason I got bumped off that flight is when I got to the gate, I introduced myself to the gate agent as a most professional way I could. I said, good morning, how are you today? Hoping to catch a ride with you, if that's okay. Here's my documentation. And the gate agent was very kind, and we had a little chit-chat. And she said, you know, there's a, a pilot here that already checked in. But this flight has two jump seats, so you should be okay. It looks like they're a, one of the mainline carriers. And I said, oh, well, that's okay. I mean, there's two jump seats. As long as, you know, a third person doesn't show up, we should be able to make it okay to work. And she said, yeah, yeah, no problem. She said, go on down. So she gave me my my boarding card. On United at the time, they called it an OMC card, and a, uh, like an additional crew member. So I went down there, and he was going to be in the cockpit because the flight was full. And so I'm on the jet bridge, and of course, there's a line of people backed up. And I'm in full uniform. And all of a sudden, I hear behind me a woman. And she says, I can't believe they let you on. And I said, well, what? And I turned around and here was a woman who was in a pilot uniform 
without all the extras. No, no epaulets, no wings, no tie of any kind, shirt unbuttoned with a bead of pearls, short spiky hair. So basically out of uniform, but wearing the uniform, if you know what I mean. So I'm like, I'm sorry, excuse me? And she says, I just, I just can't believe they let you on. I've been sitting here for 45 minutes and she wouldn't let me come on, but you just show up with your smile and you just, you know, you winked at her. I saw it. And she just gives you a card and tells you to go on. I just can't, I just can't believe it. And now some of the passengers that are in front of us, then, you know, as we're waiting to get on the aircraft, start to turn their heads like, what, what the heck's going on back here? And I, again, I'm the only one in uniform. So I, I said, well, you know, I, there are two jump seats on this aircraft. And as long as no additional pilot shows up, I think we'll be okay. She goes, oh. And then she looks at my badge. And she goes, oh, my God, you work for a regional airline? Oh, well, I work for a legacy airline. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. And just then, another individual comes down the jet bridge wearing plain clothes. But is clearly displaying his United Airlines badge, a pilot. And he goes, oh, did you guys get the jump seat too? I'm really sorry, guys. I just showed up. I just made it to the airport. I'm sorry. And the reason he was apologizing is because when you are trying to get to work and the only seat available is the jump seat, you always have priority on your own medal. And that's what he was. He was on his own medal. So he bumped all of us down a notch. Being that there was only two jump seats, I knew that I was going to be the one that was going to get bumped because I was the last person to check in that was not uh, a United pilot. And so I looked at him and I said, well, that's okay. I understand. And I looked at her and I said, well, you know, I, I know I'm the odd man out. So that's cool, man. I'll, I'll just get the next one. And she just puts her hands on her hips and looks at me and she goes, that's right. You're regional. I'm legacy. He's a, he's united. You're out of here. I just, now I'm kind of like my jaws open. I'm looking around. I've got a dozen passengers looking at me like, what the heck's going on? Again, I'm the only one in uniform. So I just looked at the, the other pilot, the United pilot. And I said, oh man, uh, yeah, good luck with that. Enjoy your commute to work. I'll see you guys later. And I just walked up the jet bridge. And as I went back into the airport, the gate agent looks at me like, what, what are you doing? And I said, well, three pilots, two jump seats. I'm kind of the odd man out here. And she says, oh, come, come here. I'm really sorry about that. Come here, come here. That guy just showed up at the last second. Oh, she, she gets on her computer. And she's typing away. And she says, you know what? The next flight, is that going to work for you? And it actually was my second choice. So I said, yeah, that, that's fine. She goes, well, I've got seats open in first. I'm going to give you a first class seat. There's gonna, you're going to get it anyway. So here. So she hands me my first class seat to commute to work. And she goes, it's in an hour and I'm working that flight. So don't worry about it. I'll make sure I'll take care of you. I said, well, you know what? Thank you so much. Can I get you anything? Can I get you coffee or anything? And she's like, oh no, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for offering. But you know, I feel bad that, you know, you got bumped and I'll, we'll take care of you. And I was just, you know, just I turned a sour situation into a very positive one. So there I was, hours later, cruising along at 37,000 feet in first class, reclined in my seat with my feet up, and 
I even had breakfast served to me. It was one of the best commute experiences I had had in a long time. So when I got to Chicago O'Hare, and there I was in our crew room, and my captain that I was flying with that particular week came up to me and goes, hey, Tony, how you doing? I said, oh, it's good to see you. And he's like, how's your commute in? I'm like, oh, I got a good one for you. Let me tell you what happened. So I explained to him exactly what happened. And he's sitting there going, oh, you, you should have got her name, her badge number. We're going to report her to the jump seat committee. That's, that's, that's total bullshit. And I was like, wow, I, I kind of agree with you. But, you know, for one thing, I didn't get her name. I didn't, you know, I didn't get her badge number. I, you know, she wasn't even wearing a badge. And, but it doesn't bother me. You know, it, karma is what karma is. And I think I had good karma that day because I ended up getting a really decent seat to come to work. And he goes, well, okay. I mean, but you know, that, that just, they're ruining it for the rest of us. And I agreed with it, but it was done. And what was done was done. So, you know, I went on, we did a nice trip. And then the following week I get to the airport and now there's five pilots waiting in front of me. And I was, I didn't make that flight. So the following flight, my second chance, my my last chance, now there were four pilots in front of me, the same four from the previous. So I actually didn't make it into work, at least not until later in the day. So I had to use what uh, our particular regional airline uh, called the commuter policy, meaning, okay, you had at least two chances to get to work. You couldn't make it because the loads were tight or the weather was bad or whatever. So, you know, you got to keep trying to get to work, but we're not going to put a strike against you in your attendance. You're just whatever flying you can no longer do, you're going to be docked that pay. So that's going to be your line guarantee for the month will be lowered by the value of the flights that you missed. And you got to keep trying until you make it, which I did. But I ended up losing like five hours of flight time because... I couldn't make my first turn for the day. Uh, but I was able to catch up with my flying and get on the overnight and do that. So the last week of the month, the last trip, the weather wasn't going to be that great. It was supposed to be snowing in Chicago. And I knew that I've had issues with the commuting, and I didn't want that to happen for a second week in a row. So I elected to do something that I hadn't done before and really hadn't done since. And that is take the red eye, leaving Seattle at midnight, that landed in Chicago early in the morning, then catching like three or four hours of sleep in the crew room before getting up, having breakfast, maybe taking a little nap after that, so that I was well rested for my trip. But in doing so, that meant I was again at the mercy of one jump seat on a 757. So I end up uh, showing up to the airport and I was, you know, gracious enough to be the first one there and get the jump seat. However, as I was waiting in the boarding area from behind me at the ticket counter, I hear a voice and that voice goes, what, what do you mean? There's another pilot in front of me. Well, I, I need to be at work. I have a 6 a.m. sign in. If I don't make this flight, I'm, I'm, I don't have any sick time left. I'm going to get fired. They need to let me go in front of them. That's just, you know, who is he? Where is he? And I just kind of 
sat there thinking, oh crap, this is going to be another confrontation. I can see it. So they call my name over the loudspeaker and I, I go up to the gate agent. I, how, how can I help you? And she's like, well, you're going to let her go in front of you. I said, whoa, whoa, what's, what's going on here? She goes, well, she says that you're going to let her go in front of you. I'm like, well, I don't know anything about going in front of anybody else. What are the rules here? Isn't it not first come first serve? Who came here first? She goes, well, you were here 30 minutes before she was. I'm like, well, there you go. So now she's pretending not to know me, not to recognize me. And she starts saying, well, you have to let me go in front of you. I don't have any sick time left. And, you know, I'm, I'm a legacy carrier pilot. And, and if you don't let me go in front of you, you know, that's just going to be a problem for me. And I said, listen, you're, I understand that you need to get to work. I also need to get to work. And I've had issues in, earlier in the month as well. So, you know, but hey, I'll be diplomatic about this. Let's allow the captain to make the decision. Whatever the captain says, I'm okay with because it's his boat. So she's like, fine. So she grabs her ticket and kind of pushes past every passenger that's waiting in line and heads down into the airplane, into the cockpit. And I just calmly grab my ticket and wait in line with everybody else. And so the captain, who's waiting for us in the in the first class galley, says, "Hey, Tony, how are you?" And her face just drops, like her her smirk just goes away. And I say, "Hey, Captain, how are you? It's good to see you again. Well, it's been a couple of months, huh?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I remember giving you a ride a couple months ago. How have you been?" I said, "Oh, I'm pretty good." He's like, "So what's going on?" I said, "Well, hey, man, I, you know, she was kind of saying how I have to let her go in front and." kind of creating a scene at the gate, and I really don't want to do that. So I told her that whatever you decide, I'll be okay with. Here's my boarding card. And he looks it over, and he goes, well, he checked in 30 minutes before you. And she goes, well, I just, he has got to let me go in front. I, I got to get to work. And, and, you know, I just, well, Captain, whatever you decide, I'm fine with, but I also need to get to work. He goes, well, I'm sorry, he tells her. You need to get your stuff, and you're going to take the next one because, you know, the rules are first come, first serve. So, and she's like, well, I can't, I can't believe this. And she looks right at me. She gets like two inches from my nose. She goes, what do you want, money? I said, no, I, I don't want money, ma'am. I just, I just want to get to work. Yeah, I want to follow the rules. So she gets her stuff and she, she like forcefully pulls her bag behind her. Now all the first class passengers are witnessing this. And, you know, it's an embarrassing situation. It should never have happened. And, you know, the captain kind of also was a little upset by the whole confrontation. And I'm like, I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry. And he's like, don't apologize. It's not, you didn't do anything wrong. And as I step into the cockpit to place my things in there and secure them down, the FO is just smiling ear from ear and just, you know, he's like, oh my God, do you know her? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, guys, when we get up to sterile, out of sterile, when we get up there uh, and we need something to talk about, I'll tell you the whole story. And that's like the worst story I've ever had commuting. But I'm going to segue this into the first story that I've ever had commuting. My very first commute was while I was in training. And I had the weekend off. So I decided to do this whole commute thing and, and, and go from base to home. And so here I was on an MD-80. And I'm at... 30,000 feet, we're flying along, and 
the captain turns the light on in the cockpit, turns around, looks at me, and he goes, well, welcome. Congratulations. You know, we haven't hired people in a long time. I said, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm at the regional partner here. I'm, you know, a new hire. He's like, it doesn't matter. You're an airline pilot. You're one of us. You know, congratulations. Welcome here. You know, welcome aboard. You know, you need anything, you just, just reach out. We'll, we'll take care of you. And that was the best feeling right there. It's like, I, I made it. All of this studying, all these exams, these check rides up till now, um, all these tests that I had to take, these licensing, how expensive it was. This is it. This was like gratification that it all, it all started to, to fall into place. And so the captain, he's like, well, well, you look like you're, you're a pretty smart guy. Uh, can I give you some advice? And I said, oh, absolutely, captain. Absolutely. He says, well, you married? I said, yeah, yeah, I am. He goes, oh, well, do you have any kids? I said, yes, sir. I, I've got a, an eight-month-old home. He goes, oh, well, forget it. I, I, you know, I was going to give you some advice, but clearly it's too late for you. I said, Captain, Captain, uh, if you don't mind me asking, you know, I, I'd really like to hear the advice. He's like, well, I, I was just going to tell you, you know, uh, don't get married, don't have kids. Find a woman you hate, buy your house and walk away. You're better off. And I was like, oh my God, Jesus, really? And, and the FO turns around pulls his head, headset off one of his ears. He goes, don't listen to him. He's just a bitter old mother, you know, and he's, uh, he's going through his third divorce and he's just a pissed off old pilot. And I went, oh, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. He goes, ah, oh, you know, forget it. He goes, you know, the first wife, I got divorced from her and I had to sell the, the, the airplane. I'm like, oh, oh, geez. Oh, and he goes, ah, oh, the second wife, I, uh, she left me and, and I had to sell the freaking boat. I said, oh, oh, oh my gosh, you know, and he goes, now the third wife, I'm getting a divorce from her and I got to sell the freaking condo in Hawaii. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, you owned an airplane and a boat and a condo in Hawaii? Really? He's like, well, I did. And, you know, and, and look at all the heartache now. God, if anybody ever takes my cabin in, in Aspen, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> And we all just kind of looked at him and just started laughing. And the FO was cracking up. I was cracking up. And I thought, wow, this, this is great. This is absolutely great. And that's my first commute ever. So let's talk about crash pads. This is the good, the bad, and the ugly about commuting and crash pads. So as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning of an aviator's career or a new job, you're going to be relatively low on the seniority totem pole, and you're going to be expected to be on call for at least, you know, a portion of time at the beginning of your career until your seniority allows you to hold a line and have a little bit better idea of what your schedule is going to be like for the month. So if you are a junior pilot, a junior aviator, a junior airline pilot, then you're going to probably need a crash pad if you're not living in base. So how do you find crash pads? What is expected at a crash pad? And things change 
depending on where in the country you're trying to get a crash pad. Obviously, a crash pad in New York is going to have kind of a different set of rules and atmosphere than a crash pad in, say, Dallas, Texas, because of geography and population and access to public transportation. So when I first started out, way back in the day at the regional carrier, my first big airline job, I was based in Chicago. But at the time, I was living in Seattle. So it was a commute. Every week, I had to pack my mobile home or my my overnight bag and with my kit bag with me. And I'd go to the airport, park the car in an employee lot or some kind of long-term parking lot. And I would catch an open seat on the next available flight. Now, sometimes commuting can be very precarious because there are more than one pilot trying to catch a ride. And sometimes if the flight is full, the only open seat is the jump seat that happens to be in the cockpit. And if you are fortunate enough to be the only pilot on the list, then worst case scenario, you can sit up there while you're commuting to work. Obviously, that's not ideal because forget about taking a nap or getting some rest uh, while you're commuting. You're up there in a sterile environment for at least part of the flight, and you have to abide by the rules and the conditions of that particular airline. So not an ideal situation, but that is what happens. Sometimes you get to the airport and there's three, four pilots ahead of you on the list, trying to get that one jump seat. At that point, it's usually based upon first their carrier, then their partner carriers, and then everybody else. And that is usually by check-in time. So you could be pretty far down on a list trying to get to work, and it might take you two, three, even four flights that you're going to get bumped off of before you can get to work. So having a crash pad is absolutely ideal, especially if you're on call early in the morning and you have to commute, as I had to do at the beginning of my career. So I grabbed a crash pad in Chicago. Now, my particular situation was relatively typical. I got together with some new hires that were in my class, and one of them decided, well, I'm going to live in Chicago. I'm going to get an apartment and to help cut the cost for rent, I'm going to open up one of the bedrooms and put a bunk bed in there. And then I'm going to go ahead and rent out that room to some of my fellow aviators. And that is how Crash Pad gets started. So that was the route I took. And it was a great time. But not all Crash Pads are alike. Now, later on in my career, when I upgraded to captain at the regional carrier, Then I had, again, had to go to the bottom of that seniority list as a captain, because now I was the most junior captain. And because I took the first available vacancy, the first available upgrade, I ended up upgrading in New York, which was a co-domiciled base. It was flying from both JFK and LaGuardia. So I needed 
to be able to get to either airport, depending on what my assignment was. And I ended up getting a crash pad exactly halfway between the two airports along the public transportation route. So what's commonly referred to as Kew Gardens in in New York, in Jamaica, Queens, uh, is just littered with crash pads. So much so that there were shuttle transportation services dedicated solely to crew members, flight attendants and pilots alike. And for, at the time, I think it was 6 or $7, every 20 or 30 minutes, all you had to do is show up on a particular street corner and the shuttle would show up and you'd pay the 6 bucks, and you'd get in and they would say, well, which airport are you going to? And one shuttle would go one direction and the other shuttle would go the other direction. And within 20 or 30 minutes, you could be at the airport and you wouldn't have to deal with taking a city bus or having to worry about what time is the next train. So it actually was a relatively good situation. And the hard part of all that was the fact that I was commuting from Los Angeles. So on a four or five day stint of being on reserve, I could not fly in the day of. I had to fly in the night before or the day before. So I would fly in. I'd leave Los Angeles usually around 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And I'd land in New York, JFK, in the evening. And I would take the city bus to the crash pad. And the crash pad I had was, was pretty decent. Uh, I actually found them on a forum. Uh, I think it was either through Facebook or through Craigslist or something like that. And I knew one other pilot that was also working for the same carrier I was that was there. And that helped. So here I was uh, at this crash pad uh, sharing a place with five other guys. And in the morning, if they called me and said, okay, we need you to go sit airport ready at JFK, there I went. And I had uh, three hours to get to the airport. It usually only took me an hour, hour and a half at the most, depending on the weather. And I sat there at the airport. They'd either call me up for flying or I'd sit there in the in the ready room or in the restroom uh, or sleep room, they called it. Um, and I'd sit there and you know listen to my tunes or or catch more Zs until I was released. And I did that for about four or five months before I could start bidding for flying. Still in reserve, but I could bid the day before uh, for open trips. And because my seniority allowed it, I could actually hold those trips. So that was my life for about eight months until I got transferred out of that base. And I was able to transfer back into Chicago, which was a much easier commute for me. And because of my seniority, I could hold a line, which meant I didn't have to sit airport ready or get phone calls in the middle of the night to say, hey, we need you to show up at the airport in like three or four hours. And that really improved my quality of life, as I mentioned before. But I still needed a crash pad because most of the lines that I could hold were early start lines, 6 a.m., 7 a.m. start. And as I mentioned, hotels, especially Chicago, can be very expensive, hundreds of dollars a night, if you're not careful, especially if there's a weather event. So I had a crash pad. Now, the first crash pad I had was an absolute nightmare. This crash pad I found on Craigslist, it advertised 
that you know it was cheap it was bare bones minimum but you know it definitely uh you know fit the bill it was a clean bed and you can store your stuff there they didn't care if you were on a reserve or a line holder or how many nights you stayed there as long as you paid you know on time and you're golden well come to find out this place was a two bedroom one bathroom apartment with 12 beds talking two bunk beds in one room and three bunk beds in another and a couple beds on the side and they were all being shared with one bathroom and in that bathroom they didn't offer any kind of amenities as a matter of fact you had to have your own roll of toilet paper that you kept in a little plastic tub under your bed because if you went to the bathroom odds are there wasn't going to be any toilet paper there wasn't going to be any towels no soap. You had to provide everything. And it was such a nightmare. I mean, the people were relatively friendly. You had airline people from every airline imaginable. I mean, you can imagine Chicago, but the place was a total dive. So I lasted there about a month. And finally, I said, no, enough's enough. And I was very fortunate to go in with a friend of mine, and we started our own crash pad. Now, this crash pad was nicer than my house. This place was a a duplex, a couple stops off the uh, train in Chicago, and it had all the amenities of home, including a yard. And my the buddy that I was managing this crash pad with, he actually bought a vehicle, and we had a vehicle there. So when I had to stay there, going to the grocery store was an easy thing. I didn't have to worry about carrying bags on the blue line to go to a grocery store. I just jumped in the car and went. And it was great. And the rule was, as long as you kept the gas tank full and the car washed, you're good to go. So the crash pad experience can be daunting, if, especially if you've never done it before. But know this, with that experience that you're going to get, you're going to have some great stories in the future about hanging out, with people that are like-minded, fellow aviators. You might have some drama, which every shared living space does. If you do your homework and check a few crash pads out before you commit, I'm sure you'll find a good one, if you would ever need one. Now let's dive into a segment I like to call Beyond the Flight Deck Door. So this week I thought we'd talk a little bit about the uniform, the hat, the ironing board. Now these are three things that most aviators don't really think too much about in the process of a normal day. But let's just take a moment to really dive into this. Now I've always thought as the uniform as something sacred because here we are in a modern society where technology allows anyone with a smartphone, which is pretty much everyone, to have instant access to the media, YouTube, 
video studio, video cameras, photography, sound, and you can be published without your knowledge, mind you, at any time. And as a matter of fact, when I was uh, performing IOE, part of my day one speech was always to talk about how once the uniform is put on, from the moment you leave your house or your hotel room, always assume that you're being watched either by strangers with cameras or with video cameras at the airport. So everything you do is going to be under the microscope. And if you use that kind of mentality that, hey, once the uniform is on, even if I'm not in the airplane, it's business, then you're usually pretty good at being safe in terms of protecting yourself, your job. And nowadays, you know, people don't look at this profession as they once did. The golden age, which you may have heard of, uh, the golden age is really gone. And that was the day when pilots were looked at with awe and inspiration. And children would stop and, and look up at pilots in uniform and you know, backgrounds back then were heavily uh, from military. So there is a, a particular way about looking at the uniform as, you know, it always had to be perfectly pressed and, you know, every crease, every ironed spot needs to be done correctly. And it was part of the discipline of having a good uniform. And somewhere down the road, that was lost a little bit. Now, I'm not saying it's completely lost, and there are those that, uh, you know, completely disregard the uniform, but if you just stop and look around the airport the next time you're there, take a look. If there's a sharp-dressed, neatly-pressed, uniformed aviator with shine shoes, you're going to have an impression that this guy is professional, or ga- and as a passenger... And they mean business. Unfortunately, occasionally you'll see a pilot, an airline pilot, walking around the airport. And their shirt might be a little untucked. Uh, They may or may not have the jacket on. Uh, You know, their hair might be a little disheveled. Their shoes hadn't been shined in a long time, if ever. And your impression is not going to change in reference to, oh, that's the pilot. But there will always be that impression occasionally where a passenger says, oh, gee, I hope that's not our pilot. And, you know, here we are. We're no longer looked at in the same sense of a high regard as we did uh, during the golden age of aviation. And I don't know if that's just because that's the way society has progressed but you know i believe personally that we need to do everything we can to you know have a good impression on the flying public and have the best uniform possible i take a tremendous amount of pride in how i wear the uniform neatly pressed just a little bit of starch and i have been known to wear the hat ladies and gentlemen now the hat is not a big deal uh, but it reminds me of a story 
that I'd love to share with you right now. So many years ago, I was entering the cockpit to fly a sequence with a pilot that I had never met. And he was already sitting there in his seat. And as I threw my kit bag over into the storage area, he looked at me and he goes, oh, well, two out of three isn't bad, I guess. And I looked at him and I was like, what? What are you talking about? He goes, well, you know, the trifecta. You know, two out of three is not bad. And I just, I was wondering, what what the heck are you talking about? What's a trifecta? He's like, oh, you haven't heard of the trifecta? I'm like, no. He goes, oh, well, if you are a trifecta, then you're automatically an asshole. And I'm like, wait, wait, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, you know, the trifecta is if you wear the hat and you have a mustache and you have silver hair, then you're an asshole. And I laughed so hard and I was like, well, I don't have a mustache and my hair is kind of salt and pepper and I wear the hat. So he goes, yeah, so you're probably just a jerk. And and we laughed and he says, oh, by the way, my name's Mike. How you doing? And it was one of the greatest ways to be introduced to your, to your first officer before a trip. And we got along swimmingly. He had a great sense of humor, but I'll never forget the trifecta. So from this week in the news, I wanted to share a story that I recently read coming from the Orlando Sentinel on a story that was published on the 10th of October, 2019. And it's a story of an American Airlines pilot that capped off his final flight last week by giving his wings to a central Florida toddler with Down syndrome. This story was all over social media the other day. And, of course, I clicked on it to read it because I love a feel-good story now and again. So, the Orlando Sentinel uh, published this story, and it was written by Tiffany Thiessen. And Tiffany writes, Captain Joe Wise retiring after about 35 years, made the gesture on the tarmac at Miami International Airport on October 2nd, after Flight 69 from Madrid landed. Kai Ketlinik, two years old, of Ocala, smiled, clapped, and said thank you in sign language after Weiss pinned the keepsake onto the toddler's shirt in the cockpit of the Boeing 777-200. American Airlines brought back kids' commemorative wings in 2016, but this was the real thing. It's so amazing what he did. The whole thing was cool, Kai's mother, Sarah Tamar Kitlick, told the Orlando Sentinel on Friday. Sarah and Kai had attended a family reunion in Palma de Mallorca and happened to be sitting next to Weiss's wife, Wendy during the flight back from Spain. As the women chatted, Wendy texted her husband in the cockpit, and he came out of the cabin to meet Kai. My last flight was very special for many reasons. I remember this always, Weiss posted on Facebook. Our pilots and flight attendants have worn wings for more than eight decades, American Airlines said on its website. First given 
as a symbol of aviation training and qualification by the U.S. military in 1913. Our wings are an iconic symbol of aviation, ability, and adventure. The surprise capped off Kai's first international trip, which included his first flight. With all the negative things going on in the world, it is just nice when people do things that are unbelievably nice, said Sarah. Since they've been back home, Kai's been talking nonstop about his gift and his new friend. When Kiltonik says, Captain, her son responds, Joe, and points to his chest. It's adorable, Kitnik said. It's a really special thing. Again, this story from the Orlando Sentinel, written by Tiffany Thiessen. What a great story. do thank you for coming along with me on this journey. You know, the Squawk Ident podcast idea was a wonderful challenge, and I hope you'll join me as I continue to chronicle the journey it took and the journey ahead with a career in airline aviation. With only a few segments left, let's move on. So, every week, I try to include stories from the flight deck or the flight line in a segment I like to call There We Were. As is with any good story, joke, or tale, I find it is usually best received if it is told in the first person. With that said, the tales I share may or may not have happened or occurred in the manner in which I tell them. Details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. With that said, this is There We Were. Now, years back, I can remember flying from San Diego to Los Angeles. And it was a cool evening in the summertime. Clear skies, light breeze, the typical approach to 2-5 left at Los Angeles International. As we received radar vectors from the approach controller to establish ourselves on a left downwind for 2-5 left, the approach controller indicated that there would be a Brasilia flying along for 2-5 right. We called the traffic in sight, and they cleared us for the visual. They told us to turn left to a heading of 300 intercept the localizer for 2-5 left. Keep the Brasilia in sight. Do not pass them. Clear the visual and contact the tower at 5-mile final. So we did. I was the pilot not flying or the pilot monitoring, and the captain was executing a flawless visual approach. As we turned final, I saw the Brasilia, who was clearly flying slower than we were, and I indicated that to my captain. He slowly reduced power so that we wouldn't pass the Brasilia as instructed by the approach controller. Just about eight miles out, 
Prior to contacting the tower, I saw a laser off the right-hand side of the airplane. And as I saw it, I looked down and said to the captain, Oh, check it out. Someone's got a laser down there. And just as I said that, the entire cockpit lit up in a green light. We were hit. Now, the laser was rotating, pointing at things in the sky from the ground, from a residential backyard. What I assumed would have been some teenage boys playing around with Dad's laser scope. So as we were struck, my eyes immediately felt the pain. The same pain you would get if you would say, look directly into the sun. So I closed my eyes and immediately said, I was hit. I was hit by the laser. And my captain, as a reflex reaction, immediately raised his neck, raised his head, and said, where? Just then, he was directly hit with the laser as well. And he immediately turned away. He said, I, oh, I, I was hit too. And I said, don't look, don't look. Heads down, heads down. And just then, I queued up the microphone and contacted the tower a little early and told the tower our position, that we were cleared the visual for 2-5 left, and we were just struck by a laser. The tower replied with, understand you were struck by lightning? Mind you, it was a clear, calm sky. I said, no, we were struck by a laser. And the tower controller says, understand, you were struck by a laser. Can you give me a general idea of where it was? I looked at the instruments and noted at 5.0 DME on the localizer for 2.5 left, one half mile north of our position, and about one residential block south of the 101 freeway. The tower controller thanked us for the position and asked us if we required any assistance. I immediately looked at my captain, and he said, No, I think we're good. Let's just continue. But I'm going to keep my head at the instruments in the cockpit. And I said, Okay. So I told the tower we did not need assistance, and we continued to make a landing, and we turned off the runway. Later, after we parked the aircraft, we both went into the pilot lounge and discussed what had happened. After consulting our standard operating procedures, or our what we called our flight manual, we noticed that there were some reports that we had to file. So we had a little bit of time before our next flight, and we both sat down at computers and filed the reports. It turns out that there are a lot of questions that they ask when you're filling out a laser strike report. Did you know that the FBI might call you and ask you questions about it? Even law enforcement. I've heard stories over the years from other pilots that have also been struck by lasers while flying. And yeah, a lot of them were contacted. One pilot told me about a layover in Fresno, California, where he reported a laser strike. The tower controller immediately requested exact location and coordinates of the laser from where it was originated. 
a sheriff department helicopter was already in the air hovering around the airport when the report came in. Come to find out, when the captain of that particular flight got to his hotel room, there was an agent waiting to have a word with him. They asked him questions about the laser strike, where it came from, what color was the laser, did it hurt you in any way, did you seek medical attention? The captain was very alarmed. He thought, wow, this is all happening so quickly, within 30 minutes of landing, I have an, an agent at my hotel waiting to talk to me? This is crazy. Well, all the cards fell into place, and two arrests were made under that particular occurrence. Laser strikes are very serious and can actually cause extreme pain and damage to a pilot's eyes or vision. After the laser strike that happened to me, I did seek medical attention. I had x-rays done of my retinas, and thankfully, there was no damage done. In this situation in Fresno, from what I understand, two suspects were arrested. So what did I learn from all this? In the event that you're flying along, and something catches your eye at night, and you suspect it might be a laser, don't just look out of the window and say, oh look, a laser. The best technique recommended by multiple platforms in the U.S. is to indicate to the pilot flying, laser, heads down, heads down, laser. That will cause the pilot flying to keep their eyes in the cockpit in the event of a laser strike to an aircraft. It does light up the entire flight deck. And if you get struck by a laser in the face, it is very painful to your eyes. So all this talk about lasers brings us to our next topic. In a segment I like to call, What's Inside the Kit Bag? Let's talk about flashlights. Every pilot should have a good flashlight in their kit bag or flight bag. Now, you can go out and spend over $200 on some very expensive flashlights out there. Brands such as Surefire and others that sell tactical flashlights that are pretty much indestructible. But let's face it, especially for a new aviator, that kind of budget really is out of the question. You could always go to a discount retailer and pick up a $9 or $10 flashlight, and it'll probably do the job just fine. I find that if you just look online, there are plenty of outlets out there that have flashlights that are around the $20 range with brightness or lumens around 800 to 1000 that work just fine. I bought a particular flashlight that is of metal construction with a rechargeable nickel cadmium battery built in. No more buying AAA or AA batteries for me. I just charged the flashlight with the provided USB cable. So what's in your kit bag? I'd love to hear about it. Send us feedback. You can either do it through the website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha Victor 
8 Romeo Tango Oscar November Yankee dot com. The, the website is up and we're really excited about it. On Aviator Tony website, you can listen to a podcast with links to all the most recent podcasts. You can shop the online store and pick up Aviator Tony merchandise or Squawk Ident merchandise. You can also contact us directly through the contact us link. I'd love to hear your feedback, so give it a try. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Squawk Ident Podcast. In our final segment today, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about a segment I call The Struggle Is Real. And here we're going to talk about how a career in aviation affects families, relationships, and marriages. Time off is crucial when we're balancing work and play. Now, there are many, especially those that are new in the industry, that think that we go on these luxurious overnights at these destinations and we get to see the country or the world and hang out at resorts and eat in fancy restaurants. And that might be true on a good layover occasionally, but I can count those with one hand. The truth is, when you're flying an aircraft, you're constantly on a heightened sense of alert because we are trained that if anything happens at any given time, we'll be ready because our training will allow us to react appropriately and efficiently. And that takes a lot of mental power. It's draining. So when we get to these layovers and we get to the hotel, we're very tired, especially after a three or four leg day. So the last thing that most aviator or airline pilots want to do is go hang out by the pool at some fancy hotel. Mind you, most of the hotels we stay at have nothing to do with resorts. So how do you do it? How do you balance a family life with an aviation career? Well, the first thing is you have to be patient. As we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it takes time to build up enough seniority to have a decent schedule. And depending on your living situation, whether you are a commuter or you live in base, that will also have an effect on your quality of life. I'm fortunate enough at this point in my career that I can hold a line that allows me to have a string of days off in a row at least once and sometimes even twice during the month. What I do with those days is I plan as much family time as I possibly can. And this week was absolutely no exception. I have a young teenage daughter, and with that comes a lot of responsibility to be a good supporter, a good protector, and a good father. You know, at the beginning of my career, I really wish I had a better grasp on balancing aviation and family. It is possible to do both very well, but you have to have the foresight to make sure that you plan your time accordingly and when you are with your family, you are absolutely present. 
not on your phone, not checking emails, but present. And that is a struggle, especially in this day and age. And I've had to learn this the hard way. But here I am, with my family, and this last week, I didn't have to fly. Why? Because we had planned to go to a She Can STEM Summit put on by the Ad Council on October 11th, also the International Day of the Girl Child 2019, also known as the United Nations Declared International Day of Girls, that focuses on supporting more opportunities for girls and increasing awareness of gender inequality faced by girls worldwide. The event was held at the New House in Hollywood, an absolutely beautiful venue where panelists introduced by the Ad Council's She Can STEM campaign and the importance of working together create brand ambassadors who are passionate about celebrating and engaging girls in STEM. Now, what is STEM? Science, technology, engineering, and math. And let me tell you, being able to attend this event with my family and watch my 13-year-old daughter stand there and soak in all of the stories and advice from these women and girls that are pillars to the community in inspiring young women to get involved and to believe that they can accomplish anything that they desire, regardless of their gender. It really was an amazing event, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to attend. Well, that just about wraps up the show. I'd like to take this opportunity now to thank you, the listener, for listening and tuning in to hear me talk about the journey about being an airline pilot and a family guy and a father so a couple exciting things happened this week the first is we've updated the aviator tony website and that is your one-stop place to listen to the podcast content to see what's new and happening with Squawk Ident. There's even a shopping page where you can get linked over to Zazzle where there's merchandise for Squawk Ident available to purchase. Now, to be honest, there's an extremely small commission that is made that goes directly into this podcast to buy equipment and software and so that I can continue on this journey with you. So feel free to take a look. Also, there are links to our social media platforms. Just search us on Facebook and Instagram at Squawk Ident Podcast. Thank you for listening. Take care and take care of each other. <laughs>